to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about a new documentary focusing on the uh, attacks on uh, voting rights here in the U.S., also going to be touching on uh, upcoming protest in France, also about the new prime minister in the UK. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we go any further today, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, yeah, Sean, the UK does have a new prime minister. And you know what? It's not looking any better for the Brits than it was before. Rishi Sunak has become the first person of color to lead the United Kingdom, being named prime minister by the conservative Tory party and receiving the blessing of now King Charles just seven weeks after losing the bid to short-lived and much-hated PM Liz Truss. Now, lots of people are making much of the fact that Sunak is Britain's first leader of South Asian descent, its first Hindu prime minister, and the nation's first leader of color. He is also the youngest prime minister of modern times, pretty much checking off all the representational politics boxes, at least, for people who are really excited about that kind of thing. But aside from Sunak being not European descended, he doesn't represent anyone in the UK who is not politically well-connected and rich. See, Sunak is a multi-millionaire, with he and his fashion designer wife, Akshat Murti, having a net worth of more than $800 million, and that's an estimate, because who can count that high? I can't. I know I can't. The point is, this is the guy who is about to oversee pulling the U.K. out of a deep economic crisis. And you know this dude has no idea how regular working class and poor Britons live. So, you know, they're going to be the ones who bear the brunt of whatever economic measures he implements. We also know that Sunak is a dyed-in-the-wool Briton, loving the United Kingdom so much that while he was running for the prime minister spot, he said that he would refer people who vilify the UK and they will be treated as extremists and will be referred to the government's PREVENT program, which is the UK's anti-terrorism program. During his campaign, Sunak said that he wanted to widen the definition of extremism to include, quote, those with an extreme hatred of our country, end quote. And that sounds awfully fascist to me. But his campaign handler said that, no, he didn't mean anyone who criticizes the government or criticizes any government policy. But you and I and every Briton who has been on the business end of police crackdowns of protests knows that he meant what he said. Sunak also announced that he would refocus the PREVENT program towards tackling Islamic extremism, claiming that it was, quote, by far and away the single largest terror threat to the UK's national security, end quote. But this pivot 
was in response to the Tory government's review of the Prevent Program's focus on right-wing extremists in the UK, concluding that the program was unfairly harsh toward right-wing extremists and wasn't as focused on the elusive cabal of Islamic terrorists. Can't focus too much on the Tory government's base in rooting out right-wing terrorism now, can they? I guess the Tory government had enough of the jokes about the unkempt and unpopular Boris Johnson and the mess that Liz Truss made in very short order that they went with someone who is the poster child for the myth of inclusiveness, diversity and the meritocracy of British society in the person of Rishi Sunak. But what they can't hide is the oppressive, undemocratic and fascistic policies he will continue to advance. But I don't think they're really trying to hide that anymore. But you know what is being hidden? The protests that have been going on around the world that the U.S. and Western media are not talking about, at least not on the front pages of newspapers or in the leading stories on the news websites. Like in the U.K., thousands protested high energy prices, with the British press ignoring the protests for coverage of the selection of another fresh face of British fascism, Rishi Sunak. British railway workers have voted to strike in early November over a refusal by the rail delivery group that represents the country's 14 train operating companies to negotiate in good faith with rail union workers on pay, jobs and working conditions in Germany. Thousands have taken to the streets in multiple cities to protest NATO and EU actions, to protest sanctions against Russia, and to protest the skyrocketing cost of living that is resulting from those policies. Dutch farmers have been protesting their government policies that they say have made it harder for them to grow food and will continue to make it worse. In the Czech Republic, tens of thousands of Czechs protested in Prague on September 28th against the government's handling of soaring energy prices and the country's memberships in NATO and the European Union. Thousands of Belgians protested in Brussels in September over rising energy prices and higher cost of living. And in France, thousands of people took to the streets of Paris on Sunday to protest against soaring prices. Many are calling for President Macron to resign over the high prices citizens face as the government and NATO continue to support Ukraine and sanction Russia as energy costs rise and potential winter blackouts loom. And that's just in Europe. In Haiti, people have been protesting for weeks over ongoing destructive imperialist U.S. and Western policies and imposed governments in the country and against yet another U.S. imperialist military intervention, Chadians protested to demand a swift transition from a military-run government and were met with brutal violence where 50 people were killed. Tens of thousands of protesters marched towards Sudan's presidential palace in Khartoum just this past Tuesday for demonstrations on the first anniversary of a military coup that has destabilized the country since 2019. People all over the world are taking to the streets and demanding that their governments do something about stopping NATO and EU aggression in the sanctions against Russia in the war in Ukraine, rein in high costs, be truly democratic governments and respect the people's right to self-determination to basically end imperialism and neoliberalism. And in the media here in the U.S., we hear about none of it, which makes it easy for us 
to not catch the fire of the people power that is flowing all around the world to challenge the issues like the outright denial of certain people's right to vote in this country right now. We need that kind of fire in this country to combat the clear evisceration of what little democratic rights we have left, because it is the only thing, people power, that will keep this country from sliding deeper into fascism than it already is. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Greg Palast, an investigative journalist and author of New York Times bestsellers, including The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. Palast's new film, Vigilante, Georgia's Voter Suppression Hitman, produced by Martin Sheen, will have a special preview tomorrow, Wednesday, October 26th in Hollywood. There will also be a free online national showing of Vigilante on Wednesday, November 2nd. Go to Greg Palast dot com for more information. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be with you again, Sean. Absolutely. And Greg, I wanted to uh, dive right into uh, uh, your new documentary film, and I wanted to play uh, a clip for our listeners. But before we get into it, I was hoping you could sort of break down uh, what we're hearing in this clip and how it sort of, uh, you know, connects to uh, the piece's broader thrust. Okay, so uh, last year, Governor Brian Kemp because remember, the Democrats had swept Georgia, took the presidential vote, uh, and elected the, uh, Senator Raphael Warnock uh, um, and also Senator John Ossoff. And so the Republican reaction was to pass a bill called SB202, uh, which Brian Kemp signed, which says that uh, in one part, uh, which has gone unnoticed nationally, is that anyone in Georgia can challenge an unlimited number of other voters in Georgia, unlimited. So we have 88 GOP operatives, and I'm not being partisan about this. It's only the uh, Republicans who are doing this. Uh, 88 GOP operatives have challenged over a quarter million voters right to have their ballots counted overwhelmingly. These are African-American and young people that have been challenged. And in this clip, we're going to hear um, one of these vigilantes who likes to dress up like a vigilante. If you see the film Vigilante, you'll see this guy. He dresses up. I'm laughing, but you know, it's kind of tragic. He dresses up like Doc Holliday, the vigilante. So you'll you'll hear this guy in this. Uh, uh, he's literally have. He's holding uh, six guns. He's got a cowboy hat, but he's also the chairman of the Republican Party in Columbus, Georgia, as he explains. And what he has done is challenge four. He challenged 4,000 voters, including the man you'll hear after him, an African-American career military uh, expert, a guy who is uh, assigned to uh, California at uh, Fort, uh, Port Wyneme. Um And this guy is career U.S. military. And they challenged his vote because he wasn't in Georgia. He said, oh, he's not a Georgian. Well, guess what? If you are 
a soldier and you're assigned from Fort Benning, Georgia, and they send you out to California or Afghanistan or wherever the heck they're going to send you, you don't lose your citizenship, even if you're an African-American soldier. That's his challenge. So here's the vigilante and the soldier he challenged. Absolutely. Here we go with the clip. Right now, I'm the chairman of the Columbus Muskogee Republican Party, so I'm I'm pretty involved in that, which I think is the right. Let's see, that would be the right way to be, and also I'm on the right. Apparently, um, you had filed some challenges to 4,000 voters. Yes. No ballot. No ballot in the mail. Called the register and the announcement there was, Mr. Turner, you have been challenged. Major Gamaliel Turner is the military's expert on warfare of the future. I project weapons and capabilities out to the future. You know, for me, it's all about the survival of the soldier. Assigned to Port Wyneme in California. So you're telling me 2,600 miles away two days or three days before an election, that if I want to vote, all I have to do is show up and prove as an American citizen that I have the right to vote. Again, you talk to fools like that. You talk to fools like that. I'm not a fool. Yeah. And, you know, Greg, it's obviously I mean, we hear the gentleman uh, uh, getting, you know, emotional there because, I mean, yeah. it, it is just pretty uh, absurd. I mean, it's clear that the weight of it is uh, uh, not uh, lost on him. Basically, he feels, you know, as a black man and someone who served in the military, the fact that he has to prove his citizenship to take uh, a part in this process. I mean, it's just an affront on so many levels. But and, you know, we know that what we see in in, in Georgia uh, uh, is reflective of what we see elsewhere in the country. I know recently uh, in Florida, my home state, uh, the far right governor, Ron DeSantis, he created an office of election crimes and security that, according to reports, has arrested at least 20 people over uh, alleged uh, a voter fraud. And so, I mean, what are some of the aspects of this uh, racist voter suppression in a state like Georgia? I mean, uh, what do we see? revealed uh, in that in the vigilante piece I mean you know we want people to, to, to go see it but even still what are some yeah. of the things no, that we can I, expect it, there's no spoilers here uh, you'll meet the major and his family by the way his father is the Reverend Harold uh, Turner who was the co-founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with Martin Luther King and uh, Ralph Abernathy uh, founder of the SCLC in fact uh, the meetings between King Abernathy and the civil rights leaders were held at Major Turner's house when he was a kid. And uh, so they they kind of picked on the wrong guy. So uh, in the film, Vigilante, you get to meet him and his family. They are serious warriors uh, and not just, you know, on the, on the military front. They're uh, serious civil rights warriors. So... And they picked on the wrong guy when they went after him. But yes, we're very concerned now that this vigilante challenge business, by the way, has gone to Florida, has gone to Arizona, has gone to at least 10 other states, Texas, um, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And why? Those are the states where um, you have um, 
uh, really tight races for the U.S. Senate. Now, what happened in Georgia is real simple. Black people were voting en masse, young people, and a new a group of Asian American and uh, Hispanic voters, and then young people in Atlanta, um, and uh, that and basically turned, well, it didn't turn Atlanta blue, as Martin Luther King III told me. Um, Georgia's always been blue. It's always been a Democratic state. He said, if they let us vote. Well, so Brian Kemp's problem, and I'm not being partisan about it. It's up to you whether Brian Kemp, by the way, the governor of Georgia, is running against Stacey Abrams again. If you remember, they had that uh, contest in 2018 where I had reported for Salon and the Guardian that Stacey Abrams was basically shafted out of the governorship by removing a third of a million legal voters from voter rolls. Brian Kemp was the was the Secretary of State. That is, he himself was the man in charge of the vote while he's running for governor, which is something you don't do usually. Traditionally, you resign. You don't count your own votes. And he did. And he counted the votes in a pretty funny manner. That is, he, a lot of, of uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people were excluded from, uh, were taken off the voter rolls. That's how Brian Kemp became governor. So, but that wasn't good enough to save Trump or his or their two Republican senators. So they made uh, came up with this SB202, which is just, as they say, in Georgia, Jim Crow 2.0. That's because they don't trust the voters. You know, if they, you know, uh, you know, the other way to win elections is instead of saying they're uh, coming up with rules that make it impossible to vote. That you simply convince people that you're the best candidate. But I guess Brian Kemp just doesn't trust that system. And, you know, Greg, I always point to something that Paul Weirich, the founder of the Heritage Foundation and really the father probably of modern conservative politics, said about voting um, years ago, decades ago, I think in in the uh, 70s, where he said, you know, we just don't want everyone to vote. But I know that, you know, the, the, the comments of Paul Weirich and even who he is, is not common knowledge. But I think the history of voter su- suppression of the black vote in particular is something that is more widely known. And it goes all the way back to post-Civil War Reconstruction era. So how do these legislations, these pieces of legislations reflect the kind of blatant uh, voter suppression of black people that came out of the Reconstruction era? Well, actually, you brought up something very important. In the film Vigilante, the subtitle is George's Vote Suppression Hitman, a lot of the film goes back to Reconstruction and before. You know that Brian Kemp, by the way, this is one thing that's very important to know. Brian Kemp, the Republican governor running against Stacey Abrams, very few people know that it was his family that first brought enslaved Africans to Georgia. Georgia was a free territory before the Revolutionary War. Slavery was, slavery was prohibited in Georgia. And, and at that time, Georgia included Mississippi and Alabama. And um, you, you didn't have slavery in the South. That was the, one, the only part of America where you didn't have slavery. Uh, but uh, Kemp's family cut a deal with the King of England. Now, why is that important? Because obviously Brian Kemp didn't bring in enslaved people. Well, you have to face history. You have to see how the rulers of Georgia became the rulers of Georgia. And they're still the same rulers after two and a half, 
of three centuries. And then we get to Reconstruction, where, as we point out in the film, you had the Ku Klux Klan, which, as uh, this uh, historian from Georgia Historical Society told us, the Ku Klux Klan was the military wing of the Democratic Party, whose, whose purpose, the purpose was to stop African Americans from voting. They, he wanted to make a big deal. He says, you know, people think the Ku Klux Klan is just some group that intimidates, that's just kind of an intimidation and revenge operation against former enslaved people. No, he said the main purpose of it was to stop black people from voting. And now we're back to the same games that were used by the Ku Klux Klan. In fact, this business of vigilante challenges was first invented, as we point out in the film, was first invented uh, by the Ku Klux Klan to put their candidates for governor in office in 1946, Eugene Talmadge. He came up with this business of challenging voters where you can be a vigilante and say, don't let Joe Black vote. Uh, but now he's taken into cyberspace. Instead of white sheets, you've got spreadsheets that you can literally... This guy challenged 4,000, besides that, the major whom we heard, he challenged 4,000 voters successfully. Um, another woman in, in the film challenged 30, one woman, 32,000 voters in Cobb County. Um, you know, this uh, white Republican, and it's important, it's not just accidentally that, that she's a white Republican who challenged 32,000 voters in Cobb. 32,000. That's three times Joe Biden's official victory margin in Georgia. Man, that's pretty wild. Well, we thank you so much, Greg, for joining us today. Want to encourage people to check out his new uh, documentary, Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman. Uh, you can go to gregpalace.com for more info. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about protests in France, political shakeups in the UK, and more. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today from Paris by Sputnik News journalist and correspondent Wyatt Reed. Wyatt, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, John Jackie. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Wyatt, there is a, a general strike that is being called in France, uh, I believe, that is uh, set to take place uh, this coming Thursday on October of the 27th. And reportedly, it will be a, a one day strike um, uh, following another one day strike that took place uh, earlier this month on the 18th. And uh, the strike has been called by the CGT union reportedly as a, quote, 
interprofessional strike, meaning that it is supposed to take place across different sectors of labor. And so I was hoping you could help us understand uh, what 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 is motivating these uh, strikes that have been called uh, uh, recently, and uh, how does it connect to conditions both in France and across Europe? Well, what's motivating these strikes is kind of the economic crisis that's taking place all throughout Europe. Uh, costs of living are going up, inflation is going up, and governments throughout the continent are simply not able to, or not willing, I should say, in many cases, to make sure that wages maintain parity with that. So you have uh, strikers with this left-wing union, the CGT, the Confederation, and they are essentially going to be disrupting uh, wide sectors of public transportation. Now, this is a wave of strikes that we've seen in the past weeks. It really started with uh, oil refinery workers last month that basically uh, were making similar demands. They wanted to have increases in their salaries. Those strikes were finally negotiated uh, just uh, in the past week or so with, I believe, a 5% increase negotiated there in that case. But that was just one sector, right? And so now uh, we know that the CGT is definitely going to be on strike. That last March, you know, the the last uh, day of actions, that was October 18th, a week ago, uh, it was around 300,000 people that were out, that were marching, that were uh, refusing to work. And, you know, these are kind of uh, one-day actions so far. We expect to see one uh, in just a couple more days. Um, and then in November, we I believe November 10th, we can expect to see another day of action as well. I expected that the unions, including Solidaire and FSU, will most likely join the CGT in those strikes as well. Um, another uh, handful of, of uh, companies... Workers at companies, including RATP and a group called La Bas, have also said that they will be striking from Wednesday night until uh, Friday morning there from November 9th until November 11th. So we have uh, basically a broadening, deepening group of workers who are to insist and ensure that their working conditions are going to be maintained because uh, there is a sense that, especially under the neoliberal governance of Emmanuel Macron, that things are getting worse and not better and that these workers have to take things into their own hands if they want to. So, Wyatt, I think, you know, this these protests in France and Paris are not unusual because there have been protests across the EU uh, in response to rising cost of living, rising fuel prices and some, you know, protests in certain countries like Belgium, uh, specifically in opposition to NATO and protesting sanctions against Russia, which are causing the uh, uh, rise in fuel prices and the higher cost of living. And I'm wondering how that translates to uh, not just, you know, the political 
uh, situation in France, but specifically the political situation in the UK that just uh, announced a new prime minister, pretty much, you know, the new meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Um, what does, you know, the the rising anger of the people in the streets mean for uh, the prime ministership of the new prime minister of the UK? Because there were protests in Britain that were not uh, broadcast at all on British media and certainly not in the U.S. So, I mean, what is uh, a Rishi Sunak walking into in regard to uh, the anger of the people in regard to, you know, EU policies that are sanctioning Russia but causing pain for their people? That's right. There are transit strikes as well ongoing in the U.K. led by the RMT. Those are expected to escalate in the coming days. But the big news, obviously, coming out of London today is that Rishi Sunak has just officially become the new prime minister of the United Kingdom. He wrapped up just a few hours his first official address outside number 10 Downing Street, in which he said that now that he's taken the top job, it has fallen to him to fix what he called the mistakes made by Liz Truss, who was his extraordinarily unpopular predecessor. She left office just days ago with an incredible 10% approval rating. He has said that, quote, our country is facing a profound economic crisis due to factors including COVID and what he called Putin's war in Ukraine, which he claimed has destabilized energy markets and supply chains the world over. Although, as you rightly noted, Jackie, uh, somehow not a word of the sanctions that are preventing people in the EU from getting the cheap and reliable energy from Russia or fertilizer or any of these things that are causing now a cost of living increase due to a lack of uh, them. Uh, But he went on and claimed that the government I lead will not leave the next generation, your children and grandchildren, with a debt to settle that we were too weak to pay ourselves. And so this seems to be the first indication that we've gotten so far that his administration will be seeking to raise taxes and impose austerity measures on the poorer population. His campaign uh, was extraordinarily uh, slim on details about how he would enact any of his promises, but this seems to be the first hint that we've gotten since his time in office. And already the hashtag Rishi out had begun trending on social media within a few minutes of the news coming out that Boris Johnson would not challenge him for the conservative party leadership, thus meaning that Sunak would become the prime minister. And this morning, Zara Sultana, who's a member of parliament with the Labour Party, issued an address in which she called Sunak quote, totally unfit to be prime minister. She said that he, quote, shows the limitations of representation politics. She went on to say that, quote, having black and brown people at the top does not mean that the lives of black and brown people in the UK will be better. In fact, they have gotten worse. And of course, Rishi Sunak is of Indian descent. Uh, His parents were born in Africa, but they are of Punjabi families, and the establishment media has already begun to herald him as the first prime minister of color 
in the UK, but he's someone whose existence is really more defined by his wealth in many ways. He is the wealthiest member of parliament by far. Him and his wife combined are estimated to be worth over $800 million in the U.S. And his upper class background goes all the way back to his education at the exclusive Winchester College, which is an elite boarding school that costs over $50,000 a year that continued with his university education at Oxford. His entire career really began in the early 2000s when he spent three years at Goldman Sachs, which is, of course, the American multinational investment bank that's been described as the most hated bank in the world. And that employment was followed up by working for two hedge funds, and then his political career followed. Um, And this kind of attitude, uh, you know, this disposition towards uh, the elites, this this disposition towards poor people is kind of a point that was backed up by a video that surfaced in August in which uh, Sunak was speaking in private to his wealthy supporters. And he said, quote, we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labor Party and shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas that needed to be undone. I started work on undoing that. Um, So that kind of tells you, I think, more so than really any uh, promises he could make, uh, any specific policy prescription. I think that uh, remark itself kind of tells you what his priorities are going to be going forward. Yeah, I tend to agree, Wyatt. And, you know, we've been discussing both uh, Rishi Sunak uh, ascending to uh, prime minister of the UK. We've talked about the French protests. Um, You know, what do you think this uh, sort of implies about politics in Europe uh, at this moment, or at least in uh, Western Europe? I mean, it seems pretty clear that a lot of these ructions are emanating within the context of the ongoing war in Ukraine. And so it just uh, it feels like. Um, a lot of these different dynamics are sort of being directly impacted by that and that uh, it seems that we'll be seeing the, the ripple effects from this issue uh, uh, probably likely throughout the region moving forward here. Well, absolutely. But the sad reality is that there is no faction in UK politics specifically that has any real opposition towards the kind of position that's been taken by the European leadership and the EU commission by people like Ursula von der Leyen or Charles Michel. There is no resistance to this idea that basically the interests of working people in Europe need to be subordinated to those of the Zelensky regime and this kind of NATO proxy war, the ongoing NATO proxy war with Russia. Uh, That is on both sides, even if uh, the conservatives managed to make it all the way to 2024, which is when the next UK election uh, must take place at the latest. If they make it, manage to make it all that way without uh, having to call elections, even despite 20-some percent popularity ratings, uh, there's no guarantee that if Labour came in under the leadership of Keir Starmer that they would be any better in the same sense that uh, the Democrats and the Republicans are more or less in lockstep on the issue of funding Ukraine indefinitely. And until this recent letter that we saw from some 30 uh, progressive leaning lawmakers in U.S. Congress, uh, there was not a beat from the so-called left 
in U.S. Congress. Uh, you know, this letter recently urging Biden to take diplomacy, they've already begun to kind of walk it back and insist that we support Ukraine no matter what. Um, but even in the U.S., it was almost as though the right was the only people uh, pushing back on this kind of blank check, as future, as likely future House Speaker Kevin McCarthy termed it, blank check for Ukraine, even as there is an incoming recession happening. That kind of dynamic is playing out in the U.K. too, ever since they uh, basically sabotaged and destroyed Jeremy Corbyn and then purged all of his supporters on a manufactured anti-Semitism campaign, uh, there really isn't any organized pushback. So the pushback is coming from the streets, from the ground up, from the RMT, from the union leadership, and from the working people themselves who are starting to realize, I think, more and more that uh, all of these issues are interrelated and that there will be no way to keep people's bills down uh, if they're basically being forced into sabotaging their own economies in the name of fighting a proxy war with Russia. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Wyatt, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means it's time for our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, so happy to be here. Thanks so much. Absolutely. And Chris, uh, the Washington Post uh, recently interviewed a number of uh, TikTok creators who were sort of discussing about how uh, the popular uh, social media video based app can, you know, be uh, uh, like a gateway to uh, a career, really, uh, in a sense that, you know, can come with money and attention and things like that, but also with some uh, serious drawbacks. And I'm always keenly interested in things like this and talking about sort of the culture of social media and the real human impact that it has. And so, I mean, you know, in your estimation, you know, uh, what are some of the sort of dynamics around these uh, popular uh, uh, apps like TikTok, something that I would argue has uh, uh, influenced uh, pop culture and music and certainly other uh, social media platforms that try to mimic its uh, uh, design? And so, you know, just how strong uh, is that algorithm? Well, let's start out with what really set TikTok apart in many ways was that instead of focusing on the content of the pages that you wanted to see, the ones you followed, your friends, you, you know, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, you know, you're generally seeing the content that you've signed up to see, plus a whole ton of ads and, and their recommendations. But that's really, in a sense, uh, secondary. TikTok threw that all on its head. And the For You page, the FYP, that first thing you see when you open the app, whether or not you've even got an account, is generally content that you aren't following. It's 
uh, it's complete, you know, really, it's not random because it is algorithm selected. And that's one of the things that really makes TikTok stand apart when it comes to how it's pushing content out to, to users. You know, you mentioned that TikTok has been very influential in terms of, you know, culture and media, music and all of that. It's also been very influential in terms of politics as well. It was just a few months ago that the Biden administration, actually, well, earlier this year at this point, the Biden administration set up meetings with very influential TikTokers to uh, orient them on the situation in Ukraine. And of course, that really just means push a whole bunch of NATO propaganda on them so that they could then push that propaganda out to you know millions and millions of people who follow them and trust them and look to them for entertainment and news on TikTok. So very you know insidious uh, you know use of social media, of course, by the U.S. government there. So people don't ever know if they're going to go viral. You can post a video on TikTok and you can get five hits in 20 minutes, or you can get 5,000 hits in, in five minutes. And it really depends on the algorithm, on how people are engaging with your video. So what this story uh, in the Washington Post by Drew Harwell and Taylor Lorenz really shows is that many people who, initially, you know, when they initially go viral, so to say, they're not expecting it. Um, and they really have no warning or no insight into what it actually could mean for them. So many people are getting trolled. They're getting, uh, you know, death threats. They're being, especially women are being uh, harassed, you know, for, for nude photos. Um, people are actually getting their jobs called on them, particularly those uh, in this, you know, anti-LGBTQ panic that we're seeing right now, and particularly in the anti-trans panic. You know, people are having their jobs called if they work at a school or other government, uh, you know, other government institution, you know, and, and their jobs are being threatened. People's families are being threatened because they posted, you know, cringe or they posted something that people just didn't like or, you know, the content wasn't what their followers were expecting. And this really goes into the idea of the, the para, you know, parasocial relationships that so many people have with creators. You know, you see their content all the time. The creator has no idea really who you are. But, um, you know, some people, because of the alienation that we have, that we feel constantly, and also, you know, in many ways, because we've had no social support through uh, particularly the hardest times of the pandemic, when, you know, during partial lockdowns and shutdowns, and, and also through work from home, you know, people start start to imagine that they have these relationships with these creators that they're seeing and then, you know, start to demand things from them. And that's a, you know, I think the best analysis of it uh, is that, but then also, of course, we get into the situations where people are being harassed. And these, so these platforms, it's not just TikTok, right? I mean, we have influencers on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and all of those. But I think the, the TikTok phenomenon is particularly interesting because, as I said at the beginning of the way that it, really changed the way that the algorithm promotes content. Yeah, and it's that algorithm and how content that creators use uh, uh, or, or post goes viral. There's the other side of that equation in regard to the algorithm with 
the the kinds of responses that people do get. So how how is this algorithm the same algorithm that causes or helps creators content go viral? How does that same algorithm cause the worst responses to some of that content? How does that same algorithm boost their visibility also? Well, there's a really good example actually by uh, a guy named Jeff. Uh, I'm sorry, Josh Helfgott, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, he's got 5 million followers. He gets a lot of views on TikTok, and he says, quote, you know, hate comments come to life. Um, and he points out that there are uh, there are two features in particular on TikTok called Duet and Stitch, where you can kind of use the original video to remix it and add your own opinions and reactions to it. Um, and he says those are, quote, a new form of bullying. And so people are actually using uh, those features to, you know, just throw, um, you know, anti-LGBTQ sentiment out against uh, Josh and, and many other creators. Uh, those videos then get picked up. They're related to, in a way, the original creator who is very popular. And then so they get picked up by the algorithm. They get views. Um and they end up in a lot of people's feeds as well. And it really just feeds the cycle. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, uh, switching gears a, a little bit to, I think, what's become almost uh, one of our favorite topics here on Tech for the People, uh, ring cameras and the way that uh, they're being used to surveil uh, delivery workers who already have uh, quite a, a task on their hands. And so uh, what's going on with this, Chris? Yeah, there's an interesting um, piece of research from Data and Society, and it's written up um, in Vice's Motherboard by Edward Angueso Jr., talking about how Ring and other you know networked doorbell cameras, so to say, are uh, being used to criticize, to punish, to just surveil delivery uh, delivery workers. And I have some experience with this. You know, as a, I, I did uh, food delivery during the pandemic when I was otherwise unemployed. And, you know, the number of houses that you'd go to that had a camera on the doorbell and they would know to come to the door because, you know, the, the camera set them off. And they would say, you know, I got the alert from my ring camera before I got the alert from the app that you were here. Uh so you're on that camera all the time when you're walking up to somebody's door to deliver a package, to deliver the mail, to drop off their food order, whatever it is. But they're also these are also being used to, you know, make complaints to the companies, you know, who hire the drivers, to the, the postal service and all of that. And it's really, you know, in most cases, in so many cases, it's nothing serious. It's people walk on the grass, uh, you know, things like that, you know, really this, this type of, you know, minor nitpicking about the delivery or whatever service is being provided. There's a, you know, a really significant issue that I think, you know, we have to consider when it comes to delivery workers, gig workers, and all of that with all of the surveillance that people are, you know, willingly, uh, installing in, you know, on their homes. It's, you know, there's, there's a real security risk as well, uh, not just, you know, in terms of threatening people's jobs. There's also another article actually just came out uh, yesterday afternoon in the same publication by the same author called Ring Cameras Are Going to Get More People Killed. And it tells the story um, about a situation that happened in Florida over the weekend on Saturday morning. Um, well, on Saturday morning, two people were arrested because a neighbor uh, of theirs 
went to their door because she had gotten a prescription delivered to her home that was actually for them. It was just an accidental, you know, wrong address. I think we all do this, right? You get the mail for your neighbor, you go drop it off on their porch. Well, these two guys came out because they got an alert from their ring and they started shooting at her. They shot at her seven times um, and she was thankfully unharmed and able to get away in her car. Uh, but she thought she was being carjacked when they ran outside uh, with their guns. Um, and so, you know, these home surveillance systems that are sold with the idea that they're going to make us safer are actually putting us at significant risk. And this is not, you know, nearly the first uh, situation where that kind of thing has happened. So between looking at delivery services and then related, you know, people coming to your front door to drop something off and just the, the general, you know, paranoia that some people feel about anyone coming to their home in the first place um, thinking they're going to be robbed. I mean, it's a terrifying reality that we have to really consider, are these devices actually doing any good? Um, Is it really helping you in any way to prevent crime, to improve your, your, your own feeling of safety and and mental wellness uh, to know exactly when somebody is coming up to your door? And I would argue that it is not. And I feel like also, Chris, that this is an issue that uh, affects uh, workers' rights, labor rights, because it seems to me that these companies like Amazon are using customers who have the ring cameras to, to kind of be like these de facto deputized supervisors to rat on their employees. Um, and and that, that cannot be a, a good work. We know that Amazon is a terrible place anyway to work, but just... Any worker coming to someone's door that cannot feel good as a worker, knowing that, you know, Amazon can use anybody's ring camera to have the uh, homeowner basically just, you know, report on on your job performance. That's right. You know, and there have been some instances where that has happened, you know, clearly, you know, just from the research. Um, that data and society has done. But I also remember a situation where a ring camera caught something truly terrifying. And it was an Amazon, I believe it was an Amazon worker, uh, delivering a package and fainting on somebody's porch because of the heat and the conditions that they are forced to work in. Um, and you, know, you see this person just you know, completely fall over and just, just pass out because it was so, so hot. They don't have a chance to take breaks, to have water, things like that. Um, that was also something that was caught on a ring camera. And I think, you know, when we point to situations like this and what we're looking at, you know, I guess that, that was kind of an ironic situation that an Amazon product caught an Amazon worker uh, being put through such torturous conditions um, but you're right that Amazon does not treat its workers well. And, you know, I think when it comes to like the flex delivery drivers, those are not actually employees. They're considered contractors under the law, which creates their own, uh, you know, really awful situations. So I think there's a lot that's happening, you know, in terms of really the, the public consideration as to whether or not we should be even having these um, these products, you know, on our homes. Yeah, and uh, there was another issue I wanted to touch on here, Chris, in uh, Texas, where a a lawsuit was filed against Google, uh, allegedly, for collecting the biometric data of millions of people without their consent. Uh, What's happening here? 
Yeah, uh, you know, last week we talked about Illinois and some of the uh, progress there in terms of the law and lawsuits there. And now we are seeing a uh, this lawsuit against Google from the Attorney General Ken Paxton uh, saying that Google, through its products like uh, the Google Assistant, the Nest Hub, which is one, another one of these smart home products, and even just through Google Photos, um, that Google is actually, you know, is, is harvesting biometric data like your, you know, your face, your to use in facial recognition, um, just, you know, through your use of these products. Google responds to this, of course, by saying that, yes, you can turn this off. Well, that's not enough because it's oftentimes extremely difficult to understand that it's on in the first place, that you can opt out of it, and how to opt out of it. Google has gotten in trouble in the past for making it uh, extremely misleading about whether or not you've turned off a location service history. Uh, And that's just, you know, one, I think, example of the way Google makes it very difficult to actually opt out of a lot of this tracking and you know many many companies uh, are in the same boat so this is this is a lawsuit is obviously in a very uh, very early stage uh, but I think it's gonna be an interesting one to follow you know Ken Paxton certainly not somebody who's been considered a friend of privacy or a friend of the people um, but you know this is coming off the heels of you know Arizona, um, and other states, you know, winning uh, a suit around that same location tracking that uh, that I had mentioned. Yeah, and I don't think we can get away without talking about Twitter and Elon Musk's uh, plan to buy Twitter. But now it, it's re- it's being revealed that the cuts that he said he wanted to make, if he were to successfully buy Twitter, would actually be much deeper than uh, previously thought. And what would that mean if it were actually to come true, Chris? Yeah. So Elon Musk says that he will get rid of 75 percent of Twitter's employees. That comes out to um, around 5,600 Twitter employees, which is that's a lot of people. We have to remember back when um, when Peter Zotko, Mudge, you know, testified on um, testified in front of Congress about, you know, many of the issues uh, that uh, that Twitter faces in terms of. Uh, its own content moderation, but also just in terms of being able to keep the service up and running, um, where if it had two data centers go down, it may take even, you know, up to weeks, uh, if, you know, if it was impossible to bring Twitter up again, have it running for us again. Um, and also the fact that, you know, many employees, um, almost every engineer has access to the database and can go do whatever it is they want in the database with practically no oversight or access control. So there's a whole lot, you know, in terms of this, uh, you know, in terms of speech, in terms of privacy, when we're looking at the Musk purchase uh, of Twitter, which, of course, is not done yet. Uh, It's constantly a back and forth. You know, Elon Musk, if you look at his Twitter account itself, he's really, you know, going in on Twitter, actually. Um, And, you know, I I don't actually know if this guy wants to buy Twitter or not, frankly. At this point, it's actually very not, you know, it's not clear at all whether he wants this. Um, or he's just trying to, uh, you know, to, to push a, a narrative about, you know, the big tech companies and their so-called, uh, you know, uh, 
the so-called, uh, you know, silencing of conservative voices, which, of course, you know, we've talked about on this segment many, many times is not actually an issue. But, you know, I, I will be very concerned if the deal goes through. I'll be very concerned if 75 percent of Twitter employees are let go. Um, and that is something that, you know, Musk, who is a you know notorious capitalist, certainly would be open to doing uh, should he take over the company and gain gain control of it. Yeah. And, you know, you, you said exactly what, what I've been thinking, Chris, and I'm sure we're, we're not the only ones, is that I, it's just not eminently clear, like, what is Elon Musk's, like, motivation here? Because I agree that it doesn't seem that he is uh, all that interested in actually owning Twitter. But I do tend to think that uh, he is, in fact, trying to make some uh, a broader political point. But what gets me is when people take this position, they seem to think that if Elon Musk uh, you know, does own Twitter, like regardless of what we may think about him, then that somehow is a net positive because he would be a, a, a warrior uh, against censorship, uh, uh, allegedly. And I mean, personally, I don't put that kind of trust in, in a billionaire to protect free speech, uh, given what we know of history. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, look at the kind of speech that he's promoting, though. I mean, it, it's just, it, I mean, absolutely racist <clears throat> Um, you know, he, he's talked about a couple times, you know, this idea of great replacement theory that we need to, you know, repopulate the world. And, and in his context, he really means the white race. Um, so, you know, some of the stuff that he promotes, I mean, he's, he's uh, you know, uh, he's a turf, uh, you know, he's anti-trans. Um, and so some of the, the free speech, so to say, that he's promoting or that his followers want to be able to, you know, further use on Twitter is actually just hate speech. Uh, and, you know, that we can't tolerate that. And there's a lot of conversations to be had, of course, about what role private companies and platforms should or shouldn't play in that. But it will certainly be a worse situation for people uh, on Twitter, you know, who, you know, who are victims of, you know, hate speech and hate crimes, frankly, all the time. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. 
That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave.digital and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, the Congressional Progressive Caucus has withdrawn a letter that was sent to the White House on Monday. This was signed by 30 House Democrats urging President Joe Biden to hold direct negotiations with Russia to bring an end finally to the proxy war in Ukraine. Now, uh, this withdrawal comes only a day after this letter, which, you know, was led by uh, Representative Pramila Jayapal, the leader of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Um, This uh, triggered serious uh, pushback from many Democrats. Uh, And I want to read just a little bit of uh, the letter that was sent to Biden, just so you all have an idea about what they asked for. And I want you to tell me how uh, radical or unreasonable this sounds. It says in part, quote, given the catastrophic possibilities of nuclear escalation and miscalculation, which only increase the longer this war continues, we agree with your goal of avoiding direct military conflict as an overriding national security priority. Given the destruction created by this war for Ukraine and the world, as well as the risk of catastrophic escalation, we also believe it is in the interests of Ukraine, the United States, and the world to avoid a prolonged conflict. For this reason, we urge you to pair the military and economic support the United States has provided to Ukraine with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. This is consistent with your recognition that, quote, there's going to have to be a negotiated settlement here. And that's Joe Biden. They're quoting and your concern that Vladimir Putin, quote, doesn't have a way out right now. And I'm trying to figure out what we do about that. We are under no illusions regarding the difficulties involved in engaging Russia, given its outrageous and illegal invasion of Ukraine and its decision to make additional illegal annexations of Ukrainian territory. However, there is a way to end the war while preserving a free and independent Ukraine. It is America's responsibility to pursue every diplomatic avenue to support such a solution that is acceptable to the people of Ukraine. Such a framework would presumably include incentives to end hostilities, including some form of sanctions relief and bring together the international community to establish security guarantees for free and independent Ukraine that are acceptable for all parties, particularly Ukrainians. The alternative to diplomacy is protracted war. 
with both its attendant certainties and catastrophic and unknowable risks. Now, obviously with this language, right? This was not some revolutionary anti-imperialist uh, polemic uh, against the Biden administration. They're not even saying stop the aid. Right. They're saying that along with the aid, let's uh, uh, try to push for some kind of diplomatic uh, path towards a ceasefire. Now, of course, there's a serious question about whether you can rightly negotiate a ceasefire while like actively providing that military aid. But perhaps that's a somewhat separate given the reception that I think this uh, got, which to me is as uh, pathetic as it is predictable. And it's wild to see people just, you know, running away so quickly from this. I want to give you a couple examples. Uh, Representative uh, Mark Pecan, a Democrat from Wisconsin, tweeted out, quote, this was written in July and I have no idea why it went out now. Bad timing. Second, it was trying to get to a ceasefire and diplomacy as others were banging war drums, not criticizing Biden. Third, I've supported the efforts and will continue. Overanalyzed by some. Representative Sarah Jacobs, a Democrat from California, who was another one of the signatories from the letter, tweeted, quote, Timing in diplomacy is everything. I signed this letter on June 30th, but a lot has changed since then. I wouldn't sign it today. We have to continue supporting Ukraine economically and militarily to give them the leverage they need to end this war. Now, there was a clarifying letter that went out uh, uh, to frankly walk this back. That said, quote, let me be clear. We are as united as Democrats in our unequivocal commitment to supporting Ukraine in their fight for their democracy and freedom in the face of the illegal and outrageous Russian invasion. And nothing in the letter advocates for a change in that support. Diplomacy is an important tool that can save lives, but it is just one tool. As we also made explicitly clear in our letter and will continue to make clear, we support President Biden and his administration's commitment to nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. So if you ever want to know why there is no real anti-war element in mainstream politics in the U.S., then this is it. It's because anytime there's something that even approaches a real uh, critique of the transparent war making here in the U.S., well, then, I mean, they're basically a uh, browbeat into submission. I mean, I can just visualize them, you know, with their hat in hand, just slowly shuffling their feet along. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Criticizing the war, Mr. Biden. You know, that that sort of thing. I mean, that's really what I mean. The cowardice is just so disgusting. Right. I mean, this shows you the uh, uh, just the, the the criminal and warlike and hawkish nature of U.S. imperialism. And we're in a moment because the Republicans are promising to end aid to Ukraine if they're elected. So now we're in a moment where if you critique Washington's orientation towards the proxy war in Ukraine, you're basically framed as being a right winger in a react in a reactionary. So literally peace is being stigmatized and demonized. And I, I'm, I didn't mean to go on quite this long about it, but I just want us to be clear about just how volatile things in, in this country and how important it is for us to organize uh, uh, to take down U.S. imperialism because left to their own devices, things will only get worse. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Maurice Cook, the founder of Serve Your City. Maurice, thanks so much for joining us. 
Hey, good to talk to you, Jackie and Sean. It's nice to be with you again. Absolutely. And uh, it's nice to have you back again, uh, uh, Maurice, as always. And you know, it was interesting. Of course, we're nearing the end of October. <clears throat> Pretty soon, November will be here. And just like we've been saying for a while now, you know, uh, midterms are quickly approaching. It seems uh, just yesterday we were saying they'll be here before you know it. And now they're just about here. And I was looking at a piece in Politico talking about how Democrats are yet again anxious over the turnout for uh, uh, black voters. And, you know, I feel like, and this is something that we we discuss a lot, but I feel like there's a number of reasons why a Democrat should be worried about black voter turnout. I mean, number one, I think we'd be hard pressed to really point to something that the Biden administration and the Democrats have produced uh, materially to uh, a benefit uh, black folks in this country that would incentivize us to leave our houses and to actually go cast a vote. And uh, on top of that, we are in the midst right now of a serious racist voter suppression campaign that the Democrats fundamentally are refusing to fight. And the real fight around uh, voting rights is uh, generally happening. And in, in my uh, opinion, at the uh, uh, grassroots level. And so I think that for a lot of us, Maurice, particularly in a moment like this, where material conditions are worsening for black people and for, uh, uh, you know, poor working oppressed people in general, I feel like I should also note about how, you know, the Biden administration has given tens of billions of dollars to the police and wants to give 100,000 more of them. Also not a super great way to get uh, support from black folks, but just sort of wondering how you're sort of analyzing the state of uh, uh, the black vote and, and what this could mean as we move towards midterms here in the U.S. Well, no, I think you you are absolutely right. Incentivizing people to come out. You know, the, 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 the tagline, what it really should be if they were honest, is about harm reduction. Never about... Um, you know, overwhelming representation or overwhelming uh, support for the community that they're depending so much on to come out to support them to stay in power. I mean, it's it's a it's a and unfortunately it's a, it's a one way relationship. And if it's going to be a one way relationship, at least be honest about that and say, well, we're here to make sure it doesn't get any worse. Instead of saying, well, you know, this is what we've done. Like, let's talk talk about you know, um, student aid, you know, and, 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 and loan support uh, for giving the, the student loans. I mean, especially if you compare it to what you just talked about regarding the, the perpetual aid that we've given to the Ukraine, you know, given to Ukraine, you know, over the last couple of months and, and the, the harm that has been caused by this punitive student loan um, you know, institution that, that many of us um, fall victimized by or fall victim to, you know, it, it's such a parallel. Un, 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 unhampered support for Ukraine, limited support for what could also benefit not only black people, but many working class people of all different stripes. And But there is nothing that they say when targeting black people to come out to support them, always kind of a sh- you know using those shaming tactics. It's it's frustrating. 
And, you know, Maurice, I really wonder about the notion of harm reduction, because I hear that a lot. You know, we heard it, of course, uh, when Biden was running against uh, Trump, you know, and and a lot of uh, uh, black activists who I have a lot of respect for, who have always critiqued the Democratic Party and and who have said, you know, we've got to vote for the Democrats because we want to stop uh, uh, the the furthering of fascism in this country and the, you know, the person of Donald Trump and his control over the uh, over the Republican Party. But I do have to wonder about the notion of harm reduction when a poll by Political Morning Consult released just last week showed that only 25 percent of black registered voters describe themselves as extremely enthusiastic about voting in general in this election compared to about 37 percent of white voters, 35 percent of Hispanic voters. So honestly, Ain't nobody really excited about voting for anybody for anything in this country. But the idea for black voters in particular, along the lines of harm reduction, when we think about things that black voters go to the polls to vote for, like we go to the polls to vote for someone to do something about issues that impact us, like police reform, like housing reform, like student loan, you know, these serious issues that impact our lives. And what can anybody say that the Biden administration has really done to even advance the idea that the Democrats are the party of harm reduction? I, I, I don't see it. And I think that this poll shows that a lot of black voters who probably voted for Biden for that harm reduction the first time around are not so convinced this time. How can they be? Um, the prices of bread and milk are through the roof. Um, gas is, is the price of gas is rising. Um, Lord knows housing supply, a real affordable housing supply is limited. More and more kids are getting an, an equitable experience in the schools. Um, as, as many police that they put on the street, uh, the people are in so much danger just living their daily lives. Um, what, what can they say? Uh, the results of, of the support of, of this party and the candidates that are running to be reelected, they see every day. And so you're absolutely right. Harm reduction is is also a tough a tough sale. But but I wish they would even just be honest about saying that's really what we're we're here to offer. They won't even be honest about that. I just hate the the the, the disparity between the demographic of people who support them the most and the benefits that that demographic can expect from from the, the people we support the most. It's that that's hard to, to swallow. Yeah, and you know, this concept of harm reduction, it seems like it it comes up in just about every election, excuse me, in the U.S. over the past few years. And I actually, I I don't even really see it often coming from candidates per se. I always see it coming from, uh, you know, uh, people, if you will, the, the, the electorate. And to me, it stems from this, uh, uh, completely misguided idea of, uh, uh, pragmatism. And I say misguided, maybe what I mean is misunderstood because I mean, I, I certainly get the, uh, the, the, the inclination I understand the feeling, particularly given um, the incessant propaganda that we're given in this country 24-7 as it pertains to electoral politics and so many other things. 
So in your mind, if we have a party that's really bad and one that is, uh, at least in our minds, relatively like not that great, well, then perhaps you feel that voting for relative, something that's relatively not that great is objectively and substantively more improved than the thing that's really bad. And, you know, that gets us into this whole conversation about, you know, Democrats and Republicans, are they alike? Are they different? I maintain that they are far more uh, alike than they are different because they emerge from the same class uh, uh, position and whatever uh, disagreements they have on social issues. I don't think fundamentally changes that. But uh, but but even still, you know, people can still feel good about going into the ballot box and casting a vote uh, because it reduces harm. And who wouldn't want to do that? But I'm reminded of the words of uh, uh, Eugene Debs, who was a socialist presidential candidate, who I believe got almost a million votes uh, uh, while sitting in a prison cell because he spoke out against uh, World War One. I mean, he said, I'd rather vote for something I want and not get it than to vote for something I don't want and get it. And so election after election after election, people in the U.S. are told that we should vote for what we don't want, then feel good when we get what we don't want. And so this is sort of the perpetual conundrum that we find ourselves in in this country precisely because of the ruling class duopoly of these two parties, Democrats uh, uh, and Republicans. So it's a real trick bag that we're all put in. And it's very purposeful. I, I, I honestly think that it's supposed to. Uh, uh, create this frustration or not even necessarily supposed to. It's just that the frustration is sort of baked into it. I I think the ruling class understands very well that that frustration exists. But what does it matter if people feel that there's uh, no alternative? And so what that leads me to then, uh, 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 Maurice, is a question of really regardless of how people do or don't cast their ballots in next month, I just think we, we have to be asking some serious questions about real alternatives, not just in terms of alternative candidates to run in elections, although, I mean, that that's fine in and of itself, but what kind of alternative system and what kind of alternative society and processes, what kind of new definition of democracy do we need in this country to really fix a lot of these pressing problems? You know what I mean? I think you're absolutely right. And the, the, the concept of, the, of this place being a duopoly, not a democracy, but a duopoly, um, run by a very select group of elites who who have just very slight differences in and and economic philosophy or social philosophy, social practices, etc. I think that's more of an accurate description of of, of the structural, intentional, purposeful uh, stagnation that we always see when it comes to you know actually experiencing the change that so many, for so many generations, have been fighting for. You mentioned Eugene Debs, uh, literally a century ago, um, was speaking on the same issue, the same challenge that we still have. Our choices are limited, and if they, are, if they even exist in, in reality. You know, it's, it, it's hard to say, it, it's hard to judge people right now given really the, the, the clear, blatant white nationalist extremists that we have in one party. It's hard to make the argument to people that these folks are, are not acutely dangerous right now and that people need to act. 
Um, and it's hard to, to not, you know, to, to judge those folks with and taking action if they think voting is is the way to protect themselves. And, you know, that's understandable. And at the same time, um, we still have to be very critical um, of the people who are who we put in charge to both represent us and, and in a sense, protect us um, through their judgment and determining where, where resources are allocated, um, where priorities are made. And, 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 and in my judgment, you know, that party that we, we've cast, at least the majority of, of the black electorate is cast to, to do that job has failed time and time and time again. And it makes you wonder how, how often can we keep doing the same thing? Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lugman continue to be joined by Maurice Cook. And Maurice, I wanted to raise uh, just a couple of the main issues that uh, uh, are really at the forefront of the minds of voters as we head towards midterm elections here in the U.S., um, CNN uh, recently conducted some polls in battleground states, uh, mainly Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan to see what is uh, uh, the, the top issue on voters minds. And so uh, uh, in each state, uh, in each of those three states, the issue of inflation and economy topped the list. So 47 percent of eligible voters uh, felt that that was the top issue in Wisconsin, 46 percent in Michigan and 44 percent in Pennsylvania. Now, according to CNN, quote, in each state, it more than doubled the next highest ranking issue, abortion and more than tripled voting rights and election integrity, which ranked third. And, you know, it's it's not a surprise that this is. The case, uh, uh, Maurice, as you noted a moment ago in our conversation, I mean, we're watching the prices of everything go up as uh, wages stagnate. I can't help but think that this is directly connected to um, all of the different labor struggles that we're seeing across the U.S. uh, 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 in different sectors and things like that. And uh, just yesterday, uh, Joe Biden made a visit to the Democratic National Committee and gave what he called his, quote, closing argument for the midterms, where he said Democrats are building a better America for everyone with an economy that grows from the bottom up and the middle out where everyone does well. Republicans are doubling down on their mega MAGA trickle-down economics that benefits the very wealthy, fail the country before, and will fail it again if they win. Now, this this is just so interesting to me to hear how, you know, lately Joe Biden has been pointing to things that are true about the far-right uh, Republican, basically uh, uh, the Trumpist, although I continue to maintain that, uh, you know, you can't really divorce 
Trumpism, as we may call it, from the mainstream of the Republican Party. But he does that while like straight up lying about like what the Democrats are actually doing in this country. I mean, in reality, uh, the administration tried to put out the the Build Back Better bill, not a radical piece of uh, legislation, but certainly something that was both uh, widely popular and something that would have benefited uh, many people in this country got shot down, not by Republicans, but by so-called moderate Democrats. And as I always say, a moderate in this uh, instance is nothing but a right winger. So really the point that uh, I'm trying to make here, um, uh, uh, Maurice, is that, you know, the Democrats don't really have a positive program to combat what it is that uh, Republicans are putting forth. Now, it's true that uh, what, you know, the Republicans and the Trumpers are putting forth is not, it, certainly it's a great uh, boon to the wealthy. I mean, we saw a massive uh, giveaway to the wealthy uh, under Donald Trump and things like that. But to pretend that uh, the Democrats are coming with some kind of real alternative is just, I think, demonstrably false. And even if we think about how that sort of thing reflects in a city uh, like D.C., uh, where we're all based and where, you know, we all uh, we're all organizers uh, here uh, on this call. So we see firsthand um, uh, how this is all impacting uh, poor and working class people here in a rapidly gentrifying city. And so what it boils down to is there's just really there's no one in the political mainstream really speaking to the conditions or real concerns of poor, working and oppressed people and pretending to do so. I just don't know if that's enough to actually try to get people out to the polls. You know what I mean? I agree with you, uh, Sean. I mean, we had a we have an example locally here in D.C. Uh, I will say the Biden administration is part of the Build Back Better uh, proposal and initiative, and uh, the federal government giving local municipalities and states. Uh, Millions and millions of dollars in D.C. D.C. received $190 million to help the school system, you know, coming back from um, the, the, the virtual uh, experience, bringing kids back into the building, teachers back into the building, giving them the resources that they need. This happened two years ago. D.C. has only spent 6% of that money. Why? When we know that there's a teacher shortage, why? When we know that we need more infrastructure to get kids back and forth to school, why? When these families that these kids come from don't have enough food in their homes, so they have to be fed at school, why? When we know, you know, community organizations like the organization I run, we have to do a winter coat drive so that kids are not cold this winter, why? So it's not just, I mean, having great ideas and policies that could potentially benefit from the ground up, that, 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 that's important, but actual implementation and accountability in ensuring that these funds are used and used appropriately, that's part of the work too. And so I'm sure these types of things have happened all across the country. We are in a, in a Democrat-led city, and there is no excuse if that if the base of the Democrats here in this city actually care about its base, working class black people, the majority of the people still in the city. It's just it, it boggles the mind. I shake my head. It's, it's a damn shame. 
and, and you know, there's community orgs and grassroots orgs that have to work extra hard without any federal dollars, without any city or state municipal funding or, or, or support to, to make up the difference. And, and, and people see that. And so you're right. Both uh, you and Jackie, we're not giving people a reason to go to the polls. They don't see, feel, touch the, the result of their support to the Democrats. And, you know, you know, Maurice, that I'm going to use that information that you just gave, $190 million given to the District of Columbia by the Biden administration for the express purpose of supporting bringing kids back to school. And, it, and this raises the question for me, where are we disconnecting from the information like that, that that there is money, like we all know that there's plenty of money to meet all of the needs of all of the people. But when we have this information where our local government is given money to help the people and that money is not spent on the people, where, how are people not finding this out other than the, you know, the people who are in the know and will listen to by any means necessary, who aren't afraid of, you know, being called a socialist or a communist or, you know, a, 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 a puppet of Putin. How how are regular people not aware of this information? Because it's it would seem to me that if more people knew that the, the Muriel Bowser administration was just holding on to one hundred ninety million dollars that could be used to help their kids, there would be a change in the way some folks respond at the polls, I think. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I'm not sure because people are so desperate for some relief that they're willing to take any relief. Mm. And also, we have to model, like Sean was saying earlier, we have to model alternatives to people that they can touch, that they can feel, that they can experience in their everyday real lives. And so the challenge is, is that a lot of that money, a lot of the state for D.C. city resources goes in the promotion of just looking like you're doing something. They spend more money on PR and checking the box than they actually spend or, or perform in substantive change-oriented practices that would actually benefit the community. But people don't see an alternative to that. And so we have to do a better job of creating systems that are, that are tangible and real alternatives for instead of people following kind of that, 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 that state process that, that we see too many of our people uh, sign into. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the case. I think that's the case. And you know, Jackie, just in having a look at, uh, uh, the whole situation, you know, it's funny. It seems that like, uh, almost every, uh, election in the U S is the most important one of our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and honestly, it actually kind of feel like we only hear that from Democrats. I mean, they always have this kind of almost apocalyptic, like the sky is falling type of, uh, uh, deal or vibe that they come with just about every uh, election cycle saying that, you know, the very earth will implode or become engulfed in flames if if you don't 
vote for us because then the bad guys will get in. But, you know, as we've been pointing out, that simply lets them off the hook uh, for actually doing something uh, for uh, uh, the rest of us. And so it, it, it really is, I think, indicative of this system itself. And I think shows a lot about the reality of, quote unquote, democracy in the United States. Because how can you call this a democracy when you're consistently telling poor working and oppressed people that you have to vote for me if you want the things you want. But if I actually win, I'm not going to do those things. Right. Right. And then if people don't vote or if that person loses, all of a sudden it's everybody else's fault. I mean, it's just this really sort of sick thing that uh, 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 that happens in this country. But what I want to raise, as frustrating as it is, what I want to raise is the opportunity that that presents for us as organizers and as movement people. Those of us who see clearly what this issue is and understand uh, uh, the best route to actually uh, uh, rectify it or to actually change it. And I maintain that what is needed um, beyond any election is really the the socialist reconstruction of the United States. Mm -hmm. It's why we're always saying on by any means necessary, we will either have a socialist revolution or we will have societal collapse. And that may sound extreme, but if you take even a glance at conditions in the U.S. and in the world, I think it's clear that that is, in fact, the case. And so it really just feels like a systemic change and the overturning of capitalism is really the only lasting uh, solution that we can look to to really address so many of these issues. Because if that doesn't happen, Jackie, then not only is our future pretty bleak, I think, but I think we'll just continue to be caught up in this hamster wheel of uh, bourgeois democratic electoralism that doesn't actually really even begin to uh, critically uh, 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 understand or do something about our issues, you know. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, the 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 economic pain that so many more people are facing, it's it's almost uh, one of those double edged swords. Right. It's it is it is the moment that, you know, you point out correctly, Sean, that that Democrats in particular use to always portend gloom and doom. You know, I know you're hurting, but put your economic pain on the back burner because, look, the Republicans are over there and they're going to, you know, the brown shirts are going to come and get you. Right. It's it's always that, you know, don't worry about the fact that you can't feed your kids. Those fascists over there are coming. So you have to vote for us to keep those fascists over there. So, you know, that 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 economic economic pain is never addressed, but people don't forget the fact that they can't feed their families. Like people don't forget the fact that they can't afford a loaf of bread and it becomes more and more expensive. Gas is more and more expensive, even as the very political party that's telling you those guys over there are the fascists are the ones that are throwing trillions of dollars to in another war. Like, you know, it's it's just a faucet that they can turn on and turn off at will, but they, they don't have the same response to people's individual pain. So while that's, you know, people suffering is like this political moment that the Democrats particularly always use, for us, it is an opportunity to present, as you say, Sean, that alternative future. We can show people there are better systems than this. 
And this is what it is. It's socialism. And it's not what these people tell you it is. It is what exists in countries like China, where they've lifted 800 million people out of poverty and they're addressing income inequality, even as they're making ridiculous amounts of money. But they're putting that money back into uh, making society better and more equal for their people. They're not investing in war. Even in countries like Russia, you don't have to like Vladimir Putin, and they're not even a communist or socialist country anymore. But nobody is going bankrupt for medical bills in Russia. I'm not sure that they have the homeless problem that we do. You know, countries like Cuba and Venezuela that are socialist projects that we can point to where people's human needs are being met. And we can show people this is what these very same people who are telling you who are not going to do anything for you. They're telling you to vote for them even though they're going to do nothing because, you know, you have to stop these bad people over there. They're the people who really don't want you to know that a better society does exist. It exists in these other places. And guess what? You can have it, too. You don't have to vote for either one of these parties. So, I mean, this is it is it is a this is a unique moment for us left leftists uh, because it, it is going to get kind of difficult for us. I think it's going to get even more difficult for us now as, you know, the the Democrats are now going to be uh, uh, demonizing us even more, you know, as, as you pointed out. But this is, I think, the moment that we have to seize to show people there is not only is a better world possible, but it's 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 within reach. It is literally within reach. All you have to do is believe that you can be a part of you can build it. And I think we'll get there, Sean, but it is going to take a lot of work. Yeah, that's a fact. And, you know, thinking about how you were described, I mean, just think about how that compounds the, uh, uh, the, the despair or feeling of people being discouraged mm-hmm. in terms of if I do this thing, if I commit this act of uh, casting a vote, which we're told our whole lives is the ultimate political act in this country, you do that and are supposed to feel good by having done it but get nothing from it, then that to me can just uh, just deepen uh, this uh, issue and this feeling that you have of feeling that things can't get better and will only get worse. And so a part of this organizing effort is not only to just sort of expose the reality of uh, how central capitalism is to all of this, but it's it's to actually give hope and, and revolutionary optimism to show people that there is another way. Right. That there is an alternative. We don't have to just sit back and uh, watch everything crumble, but we can be active in building something new because this is not what they get from the gloom and doom that they hear from uh, the corporate owned press, which at times can accurately uh, talk about the scope of the issue, but never offer a solution. And so, again, I just want to highlight the fact that that is, in fact, our duty as organizers to raise that. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch Steady C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Maurice Cook is here. And Maurice, I wanted to sort of tie the things we've been talking about this hour together in terms of um, uh, elections and uh, uh, the, the economic and material plight of poor working and oppressed people and uh, issues that uh, we're having here in D.C. I mean, here recently in uh, uh, Columbia Heights, uh, which is a neighborhood in, in, in uh, Northwest DC. There were two men that were shot outside of an apartment building recently. And it does feel like we're seeing something of an uptick in uh, uh, violence in DC. And what's particularly notable to me is how we're seeing these incidents, this violence and some of these shootings happen in areas where they quote unquote are not supposed to happen. And, and I put that in uh, quotation marks for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, I mean, you hear people frame things in that way. And, and what it suggests is that there are places where shootings and violence should happen. And somehow invariably uh, uh, people feel that this should happen in uh, poor and working communities mostly uh, black and other communities of color. And I think also it shows, I think, about how this uh, deterioration in material conditions are sharpening social contradictions. And so as we continue to see uh, uh, this rise in the cost of living and all these sorts of things and people having less and less resources, well, that to me has a direct correlation with this uptick in these kinds of social issues like this violence and otherwise. But as we've been noting this hour, we don't see any serious um, response from our supposedly progressive uh, black ran uh, government here in Washington, D.C. or anything like that. We were just talking about how all of this money is simply uh, not being utilized. And so, I mean, instead of investing in social programs and really investing in people, uh, we just continue to see the same old um, solutions, quote unquote, which are really non-solutions of uh, more policing and things like that. And as, as I say often, you know, policing is uh, just a military response to a social issue. And so I'm wondering how you're seeing uh, some of these dynamics playing out here in uh, uh, D.C., uh, Maurice, as it just really seems to me that like a lot of these contradictions are shown in a glaring way here in this town. Yeah, uh, Brother Malcolm said chickens are, are roosting, coming home. And this is what happens when you purposely disinvest in communities and, and ignore uh, structural violent harms to so many um, that experience, you know, a degradation every day. And then when, when money is allocated to address it, you don't prioritize it. You don't take it seriously. It's not the, the first thing at the top of your agenda to create the preventative care necessary in communities that, that have been purposely and intentionally disinvested. And, and when people do say, quote unquote, it's not supposed to happen here, what they're really saying is that this community is too white and middle class and upper middle class uh, for these things to, to occur because they should have removed the rest of the people by now um, through gentrification and development. Um, you think about how many development projects were started um, and completed in the two years since that $190 million went out. I can tell you that you could probably you know, count them on two hands 
the the the, the amount and number of, of investment projects that were completed because that's the priority. And so when you don't take care of it on the front end by making sure children are warm and have food in their homes and that the, their parents have real resources to do what's necessary to prepare them to be, you know, uh, productive people in their communities, and then you let the streets raise people, this is exactly what happens. And so I, I just shake my head. It, it, it's very sad because real lives are lost. A four-year-old was just shot yesterday it, uh, up, up in Upper Northwest, where, where the community is, is drastically changing overnight. And all that, all of our public officials, the only response that both Republicans, hey, this is a commonality, that both Republicans and Democrats, their only response to this is criminalization, militarism. And I've lived long enough to have seen the city be in worse condition, lock up a generation of black men to come back, apologize for that saying what a racist policy that that was and, and, and think that doing it again is innovation and police reform. Sad, Sean. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, you and I are around the same age, so we've seen the exact same thing, you know, happen in this city. And I've often, I've often wondered, like, how did we begin to accept the democratic leadership because this is a democratic city. There is no, I can't see anybody but a Democrat ever being elected in office in the city. The closest that I think we probably ever came to someone not a Democrat uh, being elected was when Carol Schwartz used to run and she was pretty decent for a Republican. And I think she came as close to any non-Democrat came to, to actually winning an election and you know, she was never actually close. It was just people would actually listen to her. But, you know, here we are in a Democratic city, always has been led by black Democrats in particular. And with the exception of one particular mayor who actually did some really good things for poor people, poor youth and poor elderly folks in this city. Maurice, how have we come to accept uh, black Democratic leadership that, as you said, apologizes for this very recent past of, uh, you know, racist police terrorism and mass incarceration that still goes on, but but in, in the same breath and literally with the other hand, while they're still talking out of the side of their mouth, apologizing for the racism, they're shaking hands with the developers and the racist police unions that are still carrying out these policies and accepting the check. How did how did we accept this? I think we have to raise our expectations and be realistic about the limit of the duopoly that we've been talking about and, and the real economic systems that we need in order to address the basic needs of the working class. We, we have to do all of these things. You know, in the duopoly, it's going to be limited because that duopoly serves exactly who it was intended to serve. The elite, they created it, they create the rules, they grab all the guns and the resources, they hoard them, and they, they threaten us, right? That's what they do. This alternative system is what we are charged to create. 
And we have to work together and gather and organize as many as we can who see the system as it is, knowing that it will never um, address the working class's basic needs because it thrives on exploiting those needs and commodifying water, commodifying land, commodifying air, commodifying food, commodifying all the things that we've been blessed to, to receive from above. And these things can't be on uh, market-based um, commodities. That's why we have so, so much strife and, and, and depravity in the community. And unfortunately, this system makes money off of that depravity. It's industrialized. And we have just as many black Democrats who benefit from the status quo as anybody else. And we just have to be honest about that. Yeah. And I also think when we talk about like, how do we get to this point? I feel like there's like a a lot of history there in terms of DC and and black uh, America in general, when you just talk about, well, first of all, we know there, uh, and it's documented, there's like decades of brutal and vicious uh, repression of different uh, revolutionary movements I mean, in D.C., we all know about what happened in terms of uh, uh, Marion Barry and the mayoral powers there in uh, this town and just sort of D.C.'s like weird uh, status as like almost like a colony, like within uh, uh, the United States. And up until fairly recently, basically a black colony within the uh, U.S. That's why you see the uh, taxation without representation uh, like uh, license plates. It's why, you know, statehood is pretty uncontroversial across the political spectrum in this town and things like that. And I mean, um, on top of the fact that there was just sort of an all out assault on black political power in uh, uh, this city and with the demobilizing uh, that that happened as a result, the attacks on workers rights and all these sorts of things that uh, have been unfolding and happening for years. Now you take all that and add on top this uh, rapacious process <clears throat> of uh, 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 gentrification and displacement, which has happened at the behest of uh, the same uh, uh, black Democrats that that we're talking about. And you've got a very volatile situation for poor working and oppressed people. And historically and today in D.C., we know that this town's uh, poor and working class is largely black. And today, uh, I believe that um, uh, immigrants largely from Latin America make up some uh, aspect of that as well, although I'm not sure about exact numbers. But I'm saying all this to say that it has been, in fact, a, a process that has led us to this point and why, from an organizing standpoint, a uh, black D.C. can be a difficult uh, entry point for a lot of people because there's just so much to try to get through. I mean, you're talking about a population that for years has had people coming to their doors, telling them what they're going to do for them, making them all kinds of promises. But uh, even if they're able to, you know, get into the position that they're trying to get into, uh, these are folks that have seen very little, which is why Marion Barry is the mayor for life, because for all the criticisms we could have of him, that is someone who where you could point to things 
uh, that that happened positively for Black DC, and so for that reason, he will likely always uh, hold the, the the place of prominence that he does in the consciousness of uh, 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 Black DC in that way. And so this this I think is just one example of uh, the the real hard work that we're going to have to do in DC and around this country to really reach our class and to be able to be seen as uh, legitimate and as people who are not just passing through and who are not just, you know, another group claiming to be able to do this and that, but not uh, uh, really being that concerned. And that's difficult because we don't have the bully pulpit of the mayor or the police chief. We don't have the uh, resources or money of the Washington Post or any of these other uh, corporate press outlets. But uh, what we lack in those departments, we have to make up for in just straight up elbow grease and in hard work. Because when we talk about a socialist reconstruction of the United States, when we talk about really addressing um, the material, Material issues facing our class, then uh, uh, we're, we're we're talking about something uh, that is going to require us moving people in the millions, not in ones and twos, and not just at uh, the holiday dinner table. We will literally have to um, have the sympathy and the active participation and involvement of uh, either a majority of uh, the working class in this country or at the very, very least, um, a, uh, a considerable minority, I should say a decisive minority in terms of numbers. And so to do that, we have to build a vehicle that can be the means through which our class obtains power in this country and under this system. But to do that, we cannot wait until the moment of a revolutionary crisis because we don't know the day or the hour when that decisive moment will come. We can't control that. We can't predict it. But what we can do, what is within our power right here, right now, is the building of that vehicle and uh, the building and strengthening of those relationships and ties with our class, because that is going to be the only thing, one of the only thing that sustains us uh, when the inevitable crackdown from uh, the capitalist state ensues as it tries desperately to continue to hold on the power. And so, Jackie, I feel like these are the sorts of things that we really have to be thinking on as we enter this next period, as these issues uh, seem poised uh, only to intensify. Yeah. And I think one of the key things that we organizers have to keep in mind is what you said, Sean, we have to move people in the millions. And but that's not done by like magic. <laughs> like that's not we, a million people are not going to hear this this broadcast and be like, yes, we need to get out in the streets. No, we need to get out in the streets and we need to have these individual conversations with people where we are, where we live, where we work, where we go to church and where, you know, where we hang out and raise these issues. And that's how we move millions, because that's how this was done before. We're literally repeating history that we've already made here. So it's not like we have to reinvent the wheel. We really just have to put the 10 toes on the ground and organize, organize, organize. Absolutely. And, you know, if, if moving people in the million sounds like an incredibly difficult mammoth task, that's because it is. But if we're properly organized, then we can punch above our weight. We can be effective outside of our actual capacity. 
but we have to be flexible. We have to be disciplined. We have to be ideologically grounded. And above all else, we have to be clear on just what the mission is in terms of bringing about a whole new society in this country. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Maurice Cook, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.